Welcome to Book Club. We're two besties who discuss our favorite movies, TV shows, and of course, books. I'm Liz. And I'm Charlotte, or Char for short. So, Char, why are we making this podcast? Well, Liz, that's a great question. So, as we all know, we are entering close to season three of the pandemic. um, And all the way back in season one, aka 2020, we decided to start doing a weekly FaceTime. And we were thinking we would actually read a chapter of a book every week. Um, I think we actually started with attempting to read a Hermione Draco fan fiction. And we didn't actually get all the way through that, um, but we did end up talking about a lot of our favorite TV shows, movies, pop culture moments, and that was equally as fun and rewarding. So we just wanted to share some of those conversations, all of those things in addition to books. We were inspired by that medium and the content that we wanted to share, and that's why we started this podcast. So for our inaugural episode, we are going to talk about one of our favorite movies of all time, Pride and Prejudice, that was made in 2005, starring Keira Knightley and our favorite, Matthew McFadden. We also, um, we have loved him deeply in succession recently, and so we really just, we're just inspired by him in general in choosing our first podcast. Yes, his eyelashes are just excellent. So (laughs) consider this episode and this podcast and anything that we ever say or do a tribute to him and his eyelashes. Matthew, if you're out there, we would love to hang out. Please just call us, let us know. You can be a guest on this podcast and it'll be so fun and not weird at all. We'll be really normal. So... We wanted to format this uh, this podcast in the same way that a book club goes. So we're going to be exploring the movie or TV show or whatever we choose for that week within the same critical lens that we do literature because as time has evolved, so has the medium that these beautiful stories get told and we want to give it the same respect. We know that sometimes these kinds of movies and TV shows are treated as like silly or trivial or whatever, and we this is the hill we're dying on, that it's disrespectful, and <laughs> we are here to avenge TV shows and movies, especially the rom-coms. And I consider Pride and Prejudice 2005 a rom-com. I don't know what you think. I absolutely agree. All right, so let's jump in. I know you have some thoughts on our first question, but let's chat a little bit about the family dynamics in Pride and Prejudice. So uh, for a refresher, for those of you who don't remember, the the main family in Pride and Prejudice is rickety old dad, who is eccentric (laughs) and exasperated, but loves his family. A very uptight and high-strung mom who's obsessed with getting her daughters married. And then the five sisters. And on the topic of the five sisters, I think that we may have talked about this at some point. But it seems like our main protagonist, Lizzie, has some of the oldest daughter energy of the family, despite being the second oldest. Which is maybe something that we can discuss later. But our daughters are Jane, who is extremely sweet. Um, She is maybe a little bit naive. Lizzie, who we will talk a lot more about as we go on, but generally she's headstrong, knows what she wants. Then we have Mary, who is kind of 
bookish, not really concerned with the same world of romance as her mom and her sisters are. Kitty, who is pretty easily led by Lydia, even though Lydia is the youngest, she's the one who is kind of the most carefree, she's very influential, um, she's kind of closely aligned with her mom and really prioritizing romance and adventure and seeking these things in her life, even though she is the youngest and her older sisters aren't yet married, which is very improper. Yeah, I I think Lydia is very youngest child energy, like is able to move through the world with very few consequences. When she does mess up, it's always fixed for her and she is very self-centered. And I would argue that Jane is actually more of an older daughter because she does things the way they're supposed to, in quotes. There's obviously so many ways the oldest daughter traits come out. And I think you're right that a lot of them are in Lizzie. And I think part of that is because Lizzie and Jane are so close in age and they they spend so much time together and they have three younger sisters sister so I feel like they share those responsibilities of oldest sister and because of that you see Jane taking on the parts of being the oldest sister of setting the role model for everyone always sweet and calm and and quiet and ladylike and not speaking her mind and Lizzie is the one who will stand up for her siblings and make sure that things get done the way they they should be done in her eyes rather than the way society says they should be done So I think that is a really interesting dynamic. I completely agree. And I think that's a really good way to put it, that Jane and Lizzie really split up the oldest daughter roles. And the other interesting thing is both of their parents in their own ways are not really that great at parenting. I think a lot of the time people tend to think of Mrs. Bennett as being the worst parent and Mr. Bennett as being the better parent. And, you know, in the sense that Like, yeah, I'm sure Mr. Bennett maybe more outwardly cares about his daughter's needs and all of that or, you know, what they actually want. Um, But Mrs. Bennett is very practical. Like, without her, none of her daughters would ever be married, right? And that's also not a practical way to go about life, especially in their day and age. So neither of their parents are particularly good at parenting. And so Jane and Lizzie are really splitting up these roles. And unfortunately, in real life... Um, You and I both know that real oldest daughters generally have to do both of these roles themselves, but we do always love to see good older sibling representation on this podcast. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think Mrs. Bennett is the basically the tiger mom of that age, and I think like especially from cultures that don't come from immigrant families or don't have immigrant backgrounds it gets a lot of criticism, right? They're like, oh, why are you putting so much pressure on your kids? Why why do they have to get good grades? Why do they have to get, go to the best college? And it's because you need to do that to survive when you come from this kind of background. And obviously there's extremes in every case. We don't need to go into why tiger parenting can be bad. But also you have to understand that that ends up with people like us who end up being successful and being able to live better lives than our parents or our grandparents. And that's also a huge win and something that isn't talked about a lot. And I think Mrs. Bennett, you, you totally hit that on the head that Mrs. Bennett is doing that for her daughters. Yeah, I mean, when I think about like my own family's immigrant background, like my dad is not a tiger parent, but 
I feel like it's just kind of the gender division of parenting things. Like, people will often allow the moms to take on the kind of more difficult, emotionally invested, like, coordinating everything, being pragmatic about the future and all that stuff. And the dad maybe gets to be the more laid-back, fun parent, which isn't actually a reflection of their true personalities or how they want to parent, but just kind of how they've had to split up those roles. Yeah. And I believe that the movie does a really good job of showing the nuance in that. There's moments where Mrs. Bennett, she says to Lizzie, tell me, Lizzie, if you had five daughters, what else would you think of? And crying when Lydia ends up leaving and all these other moments that just show why she cares so much and why it's on her mind. And it's very clear why status and money matters to them. And it's because they don't have it. And it's not because they're social climbers for the fun of it. It's because she wants the best for her daughters. Everything she does is for her daughters. And so I was really, I'm really impressed now. I mean, we've been watching this movie since we've had access to the internet, but now watching it, I'm really impressed with how they're able to show that well-rounded picture of it because I think it would be really easy to paint Mrs. Bennett as just like some crazy bitch or and I I think they do the same thing with Mr. Bennett he is clearly a more chill parent or whatever but you also see how he's just kind of out of the loop but doesn't really know what's going on with his daughters and is a little bit absent in that way and I think that is really beautifully portrayed yeah I absolutely agree And I think the movie does a really good job of showing that nuance, which I don't think is that common in movies, especially rom-coms. And some of my absolute favorite, you know, not just favorite rom-coms, but also just favorite movies in general are the ones that have a really strong family element. Like, I love Mamma Mia, I love My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and in real life, you know, romantic story isn't just about those two people. It's also about their families and their friends and their context and all of that. And so it's really nice to have a lens that's not so individualistic. Yeah, totally. And on the subject of family dynamics affecting the relationship, should we talk about Caroline Bingley and how she influences her brother and what her motives are and how, how we thought of that portrayal? Absolutely. What are your thoughts on that, Liz? I really liked it because I think meddling sister-in-laws are very common. I I personally, in these more modern romances, don't see a lot of that where it's the parents trying to cause a breakup or the parents weighing in and, and having some objection to them. If there is another, like a single person trying to break up a relationship, it's an ex or maybe a friend or something like that. But to have it be his sister and it being so calculated felt very realistic to me. I don't know if it's because the world is changing or the Americanized world that we see movies in is changing to the point where siblings' opinions don't matter as much. And maybe that's the reason we don't see it as much or it's not a main plot point anymore but I think at least in my experience it really really matters like what your siblings think of your partner and if they don't like your partner it really really sucks for you and for everyone involved yeah and I totally agree I think that people maybe sometimes tend to forget that Elizabeth isn't the only one with family baggage like Darcy you know isn't necessarily related to Caroline or to Mr. Bingley 
But those people are still a part of the baggage that he brings to that relationship. He has his own sister, Georgiana, who also is really important to him and to the plot and all of that. And so Elizabeth isn't the only one who has these past relationships that are maybe embarrassing or maybe difficult or may have affected how she views relationships. Like, it is a two-way street. And also through the relationship that Darcy has with his own sister, um, you know, that's such an important part of him being humanized in Elizabeth's eyes. And that part is always so wonderful for me to watch or read or whatever, because she really is realizing that, oh, he does know what it is to have a complicated family and to have dealt with needing to protect someone who he really cares about. So it's not just unique to her, he can really relate to her on that aspect, and that's actually a really big point of connection for them. I totally agree. My heart melts every single time where he's like, no, I said quite well, and and Georgiana stares at them with that sparkle in her eye, and I'm like, oh, this is so precious and perfect. Yeah, I agree. It it totally humanizes him. It makes us understand why he's so hard and closed off and why he treats Wickham with so much anger and contempt. And it's so understandable because it's one thing to just hear about like Darcy's sister. And then there's one thing to see the sunshine that is Georgiana and be like, oh, this is the person he did that to? Like, that's that makes everything even worse. And you totally understand why Darcy is so, so cold especially at first. I think the other wonderful thing about their relationship is that Georgiana brings out the warmth in him. It, it's such a like stark contrast and her warmth is infectious and it immediately changes him. And I think it's a wonderful example of how a sibling can make a positive impact on your relationship and really be like, this person is really good for you and push it forward and encourage it. And again, showing the importance of your sibling's role in your life. I agree. And I think that being able to see Darcy in his family context is such a gift for Elizabeth and for all of us who are watching and reading this story. Something that I think about a lot in regards to this story is that as someone with a complicated, chaotic, sometimes difficult family, part of my desire to be loved is to have someone who doesn't step away from that, right? someone who's willing to lift themselves out of their own ego long enough to be like, okay, this is kind of difficult, but I'm able to take part in the good and the bad parts of being in that family context because I don't want to be made to feel bad or guilty about my family's shortcomings, which is what Darcy does to her in his first proposal, which is extremely bad. But part of the evolution he goes through is getting to the point where he can be like, okay, I understand that this is also difficult for you. Like, your mom being crazy is not just something that you're going along with. This is really hard for you, and I shouldn't be such a dick about it. You know, this is something that we get through together, something that we work with each other on and laugh about and understand also the good aspects of your mom's character or your family's character. So I think that him being willing to step up in that way and truly engage with her family is definitely a beautiful, aspirational part of their relationship. And it wouldn't be the same without them understanding each other's family context. That's such a good point. I honestly teared up when you explained it like that because it's so true. And that's what makes their romance and relationships so deep and so powerful. It's It, it goes from 
two ends of the spectrum, right? And she says that. She says that you have insulted me in every way possible because her family is so important to her. She has a big family and she really loves everyone in her family. And she's very close to her sisters. He goes from that to actually quietly saving her family by simply fixing it. Exactly like you said, he steps out of his ego and he just does it. He's like, I am going to fix this problem. This isn't your fault. It's it's not anyone's fault. I mean, Wickham's fault, obviously. And Lydia's an idiot, but <laughs> he was just like, if I'm going to love Lizzie, part of that is just accepting her family. And part of accepting her family is just fixing the problems and dealing with them. And he just shows that through action. And the best part of that is, as we know, is it wasn't to check a box because he wasn't even going to tell her. It's just that he's decided that he just loves Lizzie and this is just his life now, which makes it where he's just taking care of her and her family. And I think that makes it even sweeter. Now I'm tearing up. This is so rude of you. <laughs> um, but really, that moment when he just steps up and protects Lydia like that, and even when he kind of redeems himself with the treatment of Jane and facilitates Jane's happiness and Bingley's happiness, those are just such crucial moments because he's really kind of figured out the strain that Lizzie is under. And that part of the plot is where Lizzie is dealing with Lydia running away and, you know, all of this other stuff. And it's a very oldest daughter moment. Like, that's her taking her turn with the oldest daughter mantle. And her just being like, you know, how do I fix this? How do I protect my family? So it's not just about Lydia, it's about everyone. And then Darcy being able to see that and recognizing that strain in her. And then also being, you know, exactly as you said, he's not doing this out of ego. He's kind of learned what her love language is. And he was like, okay, my act of service for you is that I'm going to do this regardless of whether you know about it. Because... I understand that this is really important to you. That is exactly it. Obviously, we know the basic love languages, but within acts of service, I think something that is really important to oldest daughters who come from big families, big complicated families, is taking care of my family. And that's because that's something we're always going to have to do. And that's something that your partner is also going to have to do. And so that's why it's a love language. It's because it's something you need. Exactly what you said. He found out what she needed and he just did it. <laughs> and it was perfect. And I think when I was a kid, I like was missing a lot of that nuance when I watched this movie. I was like, she forgave him so quick or whatever. And then as I grow older and deal with the kinds of things that Lizzie does, I'm like, oh my God, this is the most romantic thing on earth. <laughs> That's a really great point because there are so many aspects of this that you don't understand until you're older and you're dealing with a lot of this really complicated stuff. And that's why we keep coming back to Mr. Darcy in 2022 and being like, oh my god, he's this amazing, feminist, awesome, supportive love interest. It's because he really is showing up and doing the work quietly and really understanding what Lizzie needs because of her position and her family and despite the point where he starts from, because, you know, as a, a single, young, extremely wealthy man, he doesn't have that many obligations. He doesn't have to sort of lower himself to do this and chase down Wickham and all of this stuff, but he does it. So I think we had some other thoughts on family dynamics. I don't think so. I was thinking about Cousin Collins and Lady Catherine, but... I don't think they're as interesting. Actually, why don't we talk about, you know, who are the side characters who we enjoy or don't enjoy? Or who do we feel drawn to or who maybe deserves more nuance in the story? 
I know you're a fan of Charlotte, so do you want to talk about her first? I would love to talk about Charlotte. I mean, I think for, for everyone who read or watched any iteration of Pride and Prejudice over the years, some people relate really strongly to Lizzie, and I think that's great, but many of us are not really Lizzie's particular brand of kind of being really outspoken, headstrong, um, protagonist. And I kind of feel like most of the literature that I read or most of the movies and shows that I watched, um, especially as a young person, kind of featured this particular kind of protagonist. Um, And if you're not this exact kind of person who is very loud all the time and says exactly what they think and kind of always does the most, like, Gryffindor thing to do, um, there is maybe a sense that you don't really get that happy ending um, or the same kind of context or nuance as the main character. And honestly, I kind of resented that um, because I'm not that kind of person. I'm pretty introverted. I tend to be quiet. I tend to take more time to think about things and make choices. Um, and so I think that when you consider Charlotte's position in the story, I think that she actually absolutely made the right choice to marry Mr. Collins. You know, in an ideal world, I would love for her to have a really exciting, passionate, supportive, loving husband, but that's, you know, just not the context that she lived in. And she is also older. You know, I think in the story, she was 27 or 28. And so she got married. And this was really important because her family, you know, had way less money than Elizabeth's family, or maybe not way less, but definitely was lower down on the social ladder. And Elizabeth's family, you know, was already struggling to get their daughters married off and so forth. And so for Charlotte to receive this proposal from this nice guy, you know, he's he's really boring. Um, he's a little bit irritating, but you can also kind of tune that out. And what she gets at the end of the day is a pretty nice house, um, security, um, a relationship with someone who is high up in the aristocracy, aka Lady Catherine, and all of the material um, things that Charlotte receives from Mr. Collins really provide her with a lot of security. And I just feel like her pragmatic nature means that she has the tools to find happiness and fulfillment regardless of her less than ideal relationship. You know, she, she made the right decision and It always kind of irks me in the story when Elizabeth is being a little judgy about it because not everyone is going to have Lizzie's ending or even Jane's ending. And I think that's fine, you know, I think Charlotte will be okay. And I don't love this perception that Charlotte is the foil to Elizabeth because there's this idea that if only had, if Charlotte had only stuck it out and not lowered her standards, she would have found her equivalent of Mr. Darcy or Mr. Bingley. But there just aren't that many, you know, extremely rich, good-looking, aristocratic British gentlemen wandering around the countryside. So I feel like she made the right call, and she has the capacity to be happy. I agree. And I think, though, although I'm sure it's frustrating to read Lizzie's judgment, is it's very natural for her to do that. And I at least got the impression that Lizzie came around, and the lesson that she learns there that I think a lot of us could take from it is that you have to respect and other people's decisions, even if it's not what you think is the right decision or what you would do or like the most romantic or the most airbrushed, for lack of a better word, path to happiness. I guess I also have the question, what came first, right? This idea that all 
marriages or all partnerships have to be super romantic and passionate. Was it the media first or was it the stories we read that make us think of this romanticized version in our head that make us like want to desire this and judge people who don't go down that route? I personally have experienced it. Maybe for me, it's not the right decision, but that is not my place to judge anyone else for their decisions or what makes them happy or what's right for them in that moment. And I think Lizzie learns that lesson too and comes to terms with it when she likes Charlotte's letter and then goes and visits her and then ends up seeing Charlotte's life and seeing that it's pretty good. And I I mean, maybe I'm reading into it or misremembering a detail, but I was like, well, what if Lizzie doesn't get her magical happy ending? Will she also have to go down the more pragmatic route like Charlotte and 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 is she thinking that? And and what would it take for her to go down that route? Because I think that's a decision that a lot of us being women in our 20s in this day and age have to think about a lot and make a lot as we think about dating and and marriage. And we're not there yet because we're still in our mid-20s. But I hear that as you get older, you have to start being more pragmatic about your dating choices. And you have to end up making these sacrifices. And I think everyone, when you're like young, and have the world at your feet is more of a Lizzie, I should say, and has more Lizzie tendencies and has these visions for a huge future. And as you get older, you you get a bit more Charlotte in you. And you're like, actually, I should take a pretty good option that's right in front of me that is filled with security and love and and other great things. Yeah, absolutely. Lizzie does come around. And I agree, people tend to focus on you know, the romantic lessons within the story, but there's also really these friendship lessons about the importance of having empathy for someone else's decisions and understanding that they're still doing the right thing. It's maybe not what you would have done, but it might be right for them. And then also, as you said, we grow older and, you know, take on more of Charlotte's perspective, maybe. We also understand that it's not so bad, you know, like Charlotte will be fine. Maybe in our fan fictions, Mr. Collins is out of the picture somehow. I'm not going to say he dies because that feels rude, but he's fine. Um, But, you know, maybe in our imaginations, Charlotte does eventually get the partner that we would all hope for her to have. But in the meanwhile, in the meantime, she is doing okay. I think that she has the capacity and the intelligence and the tools and the perspective to be fulfilled in her situation, to make the most of it, to still live a fulfilling life. And that's actually a skill that all of us, regardless of whether we're Jane or Lizzie or Charlotte or whoever, um, we do need to develop the skill as we go on because we're never going to find the perfect ideal situation. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is another one of those things that as we personally grow older and take in this story at different parts of our life, probably be very differently. I don't know how you felt when you read this when you were younger, but when I was younger and I read this, I was like, oh, Charlotte's settling. And now as I grow older, I can see that, like, no, she made a reasonable decision that worked for her. In like so many books, like Harry po- the Harry Potter series is obviously one of them for me, but this is another one where I can see myself grow every time I read the book and I see my reaction to it. Yeah, and I think... You know, on the on the topic of side characters, um, thinking about Jane, I feel like when I was younger, I was kind of like, oh, Jane is perfect. Like, she's so sweet. She's kind of going along being this, like, perfectly angelic being. Um, and now that I'm older, I'm a little bit more like, you know, maybe Jane should have 
been a little bit less naive and kind of used her experiences to maybe take on some more agency. Maybe she should have helped out a little bit more. Maybe she should have been a little bit more active. And, you know, I, I don't know how you feel about Jane. I still really love her, but I do kind of, you know, maybe wonder if she might have evolved a little bit more. I think I agree because I I have a few people in my life who are Janes and I've seen them as they grow older, take on a lot more agency and initiative and in, in ways in their life. And Jane is still pretty young, but given her role in her family, I, I think I agree with you where I still love her, but I really think she could do more. And especially for Lizzie, for her beloved sister Lizzie, maybe she could just pull a little bit more weight. I don't know. I absolutely agree. Um, but I think also it's it's very clear in the movie and the book that the way that each sister has turned out is kind of a reflection of their parents. Um, you know, bad parenting potentially. And so I think, again, when I was younger, I looked at Lydia and I was like, oh my god, Lydia sucks. Um, and I still think that, you know, she is, she is irresponsible and all of that. But she is also very, very young, and she has been permitted to behave the way that she does by both of her parents, by her mom and by her dad. And I think that as Lydia maybe experiences more of what her married life is like, and, you know, what are the real challenges she faces, there may be a future in which she actually does evolve and maybe understand more of what her older sisters have sacrificed for her. Yeah, and... I think I feel the same about Jane and the way her mom is always like, you're so beautiful, like my perfect Jane, over and over again. I'm sure that doesn't help anyone with developing a sense of agency. So I think you're absolutely right that it is a reflection of how their parents are. One character who I actually don't think about very often at all, actually, is Wickham, which is maybe weird considering that he plays such a big role in the plot, but I do kind of see him as you know, maybe not totally one-dimensional, but he's not really who this story is about, and I'm not really all that interested in his inner life. Like, I think he sucks and kind of consistently has sucked um, before the story and throughout the story and will probably continue to be terrible after the story. I don't know if you have any more interesting thoughts on him. He feels very boring to me also. And Georgiana was like 14 or 15 or something, which is objectively insane like in those times but also now but despite all of that I do feel like he is just kind of boring and I'm not all that interested in learning more about his motivations or whatever yeah I agree I don't think they gave us enough like bait to even be curious they could if they wanted to but right now I'm just like eh the bait is that he's played by an actor who looks very similar to Orlando Bloom like, I know you're not a Lord of the Rings person, but for those of us who are, we have gone through phases of being intensely in love with Orlando Bloom. And so I think that's the only thing that Wickham has going for him in the movie, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that happened to you, but... Unfortunately, it is a chronic condition. <laughs> um, but I will say that the the trend that I feel like I've observed among a lot of other young women who are attracted to men is that as we aged, we stopped being really into Orlando Bloom's character in Lord of the Rings and became extremely into Viggo Mortensen, um, whose character is Aragorn. And I think that Legolas to Aragorn transition is like genuinely a phenomenon. Like I think we should study it. 
I think there should be researchers looking at it because it's a real thing. I just want to put that out there for anyone who's listening. If you're willing to share your experiences on this really essential and timely topic, um, please do let us know. Um, but anyway, um, I will just say that Mr. Collins is truly an incredible comic character. Like, I'm just so grateful to Jane Austen for creating him. I absolutely adored the scene where the family all eating together and the dad and Lizzie and Lydia all just laughing under their breath the entire time. Another very honest and realistic depiction of what it's like sometimes to have dinner with your family in an odd stranger presentation I was looking for. Should we take this opportunity to talk about the beauty that is Matthew? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, we we struggled with how to pronounce this, but according to James Corden, it's Matthew McFadden. So it's it's phonetic. Um, but yeah, take it away. My favorite part about him is his beautiful, sad eyes, and how even when he seems cold and mean, you can just see the deep sadness behind those eyelashes. And you just know that underneath all of that anger is pain. And you finally see the sadness leave his eyes for the first time when he laughs around Georgiana. And I think he, the actor, does just an amazing job of showing us how important Georgiana is to Mr. Darcy. Matthew McFadden is absolutely brilliant in this role. Um, And also, Mr. Darcy, as a character, is such a Tumblr girl. Like, he would have been on Tumblr in the mid-2010s, posting and kind of reblogging kind of vague quotes about his existential sadness and his desire to be loved. Like, I just feel like he would have had a really good time on there. He would have been reblogging sad, rainy pictures, the black and white ones, and then been like, missing you, dot, 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 when he reblogged it, and just hoped that Lizzie would see it. Exactly. Um, But then if he ever found out that she did see it, he would have immediately deleted the post because it's just, like, too humiliating to ever have his feelings known like that, even in, like, a really obscured way. Um, But we... So we also can't talk about the movie without talking about the hand flex scene, which is absolutely essential. I don't even know how to analyze it in words because it's just pure feeling. Like that moment when you see his face and her face and then his hand and he walks away and the feeling you get is just pure yearning. Like there's so much yearning involved between his his sad eyes and his hand. It's just visceral the feelings I have in that scene and thinking about it honestly I can feel my tear glands like you know gearing up (laughs) but in that moment you realize that it's not just people who dislike each other there's something deeper there there is this deep you don't know what it is yet there's electricity there's chemistry they both felt it and he's still feeling it as he walks away And I think that's why it's so hard to talk about the scene is because you don't, in in that moment, in that scene, they don't know what it is yet. And we don't know what it is yet because they don't know what it is yet. But you know it's something and it's that spark. And we can feel it through the scene because the, the tension between them is so high and the chemistry is so deep. 
Visceral is absolutely the right word for it. And I feel like, you know, again, all of the best rom-coms have that moment of just, just absolute, like, these two are just pining for each other and you, you really, really want them to get together and you're just so invested. Um, and then when you get proof of that yearning, it's just the best feeling. And in the, the recent movie adaptation of Emma, um, I think it came out in 2020 and, you know, I forced you to watch it, um, but it has its ups and downs, but, you know, overall, I think it's a really, really good adaptation and it captured that feeling of yearning really, really well in that scene where they're finally dancing together and they're not wearing gloves and she has to leave and he's just chasing her and he gets to her house and they just see each other um, through the window and he's just collapsing, like literally just collapsing when he gets back home, um, just on his bedroom floor, just from absolute yearning and not knowing what to do with any of his feelings. And you really feel that. And it's just that same genre of visceral yearning and pining. I agree. And it's so hard to get that moment right, in, especially in the enemies to lovers trope. I watched a lot of bad rom-coms too, and in addition to my favorite ones. So I've seen this moment so many times and it's it can be so cringy and so forced or just feel like the characters are kind of shrugging into it rather than being unable to keep themselves apart. And I think that's what we see in Emma. That's what we see here. That's what we see in the proposal in the bathroom scene and I think it's a work of art the way these directors and actors capture that feeling and show it to us so well and also the dance scene when everyone around them disappears and their only focus is each other chills just thinking about it for them to be shook out of that reverie when the song was over was a reminder that it is such an intense feeling and it's more than just a regular old, you're rude, or you said something rude to me at a party. It's, it's powerful. It's magnetic. That's not normal. It's not normal. It's absolutely not normal. And we love it. We love to see it. I think it's also like, I think, you know, I know people like to joke about like, oh, Victorians were overcome by the sight of an ankle or something. And, you know, whether or not that's historically accurate, I don't actually think it is, but, you know, whatever. But this movie really is, you know, unlike a lot of, obviously, modern rom-coms because of the year that it's set in, and maybe also because at the time it was made, um, you know, I'm sure we can talk about that ending scene that was only in the U.S. where they kind of make out and it's, like, scandalous. But it is a movie without those traditional relationship beats that we see in the modern rom-com. Um, You know, even this enemies to lovers scenario that they go through where they realize their feelings for each other and they have some kind of, you know, big physical demonstration of their love. And that hand flex scene captured all of that same tension and energy and in just that one millisecond of just a shot of his hand. And it's so well done. And it also shows that you don't need that gratuitous nudity or gratuitous sex scenes in order to advance the viewer's understanding of what's happening. Like, those are great when they actually fit with the plot, but a lot of the time they're just kind of thrown in or the actors don't have any real chemistry, which is just really frustrating, um, you know, to the lovers of rom-coms. Yeah, and I think that's what's so beautiful about this whole movie and book is, is 
it just has all of the moments are so subtle but tell so much yeah so let's talk about some alternate ships in this movie Honestly, I feel like because Elizabeth and Darcy's story is so all-encompassing, I would never ship either of them with anyone else. But I could see Jane and Mr. Collins. I was thinking that too! Or Mary and Mr. Collins. And I think Jane would have done it if her mom had asked. Yeah, it's just that her mom was so hell-bent on Bingley that she didn't even, you know, think about Jane and Collins. Um, And, you know, I think Mary and Collins could also have done well. I actually, I don't think I ship Jane and Mr. Collins. I think I could have seen it happening and both of them being perfectly content with it. But I ship Mary and Mr. Collins from the little we know about Mary's personality. I agree. I think something like Lydia and Mr. Collins pairing would have been really entertaining, but truly awful for everyone at the end of the day. Um, But Mary and Mr. Collins, I think, could articulate their conflicts and kind of be on the same wavelength, if that makes sense. Also, I was really into Darcy's friend, Fitzwilliam, also. Yes, excellent point. He is definitely the underappreciated member of Darcy's family. Yeah, I really liked him. I could see him with Charlotte, maybe, or Jane. So it feels like, you know, in our sort of alternate universe where Charlotte does get to marry someone else, she is kind of, um, you know, living her life. Mr. Collins leaves or dies or whatever. And then um, Fitzwilliam, Mr. Darcy's cousin, is there to provide solace. Um, and, you know, look at Charlotte. They they meet. Who knows? They could have a really happy life together. Yeah. And I think the other benefit of Charlotte ending up with Fitzwilliam is that she and Lizzie can hang out all the time. And then they're husbands can go hang out by themselves and then these two can hang out by themselves and that's perfect and then they would be able to avoid lady catherine together like a unified front any other alternate ships i don't think i have any so let's get into the parts of this movie that we don't get as much of from the book soundtrack filmography what stood out to you why I think definitely the general homey feeling of the whole film because of the color palette, the music, just the way it's edited to show the sort of natural progression of life in the family's house. So it's not just that we're looking at just Elizabeth or just Jane, but we do get these really lovely glimpses into the chickens and, um, you know, what is everyone else up to? And all those normal background family chatter feels really comforting. I agree. The bustling of, of the entire home and the the servant who's always humming. And I really like the shots of when they go into each room and show the commotion, the different ty- type of commotion that's going on in each room. You, you can see the different relationships and little nuggets of the relationships that tell us so much more about the overall dynamic of the fa- family. Like in that scene right after... Jane gets proposed to you see Kitty sitting by the window staring out very obviously missing Lydia you see Jane and Lizzie giggling in their bed and Mr. and Mrs. Bennett finally relieved and happy and sharing a moment of intimacy which we 
barely see throughout the movie, but know is there, but finally see because they're finally experiencing this moment of privacy and and happiness. So I love those shots. I agree. I also like the way that it's just really directly contrasted with, um, you know, Netherfield, Bingley's property, and just the general austerity of the colors there, the emptiness of the room, the lack of even just seeing servants around there, hearing people bustling out and about. Um, and that made such a difference. And you really feel like you identify so much more with Lizzie kind of trampling in from the fields and coming into this relatively sterile environment. And then when you go to Pemberley, even though that's also a relatively empty place, the choices they make in terms of the shots of the art and just following Lizzie with the shot as she goes through this gallery and experiences this emotional change is so powerful. And you're just looking at these three situations and you're like, oh wow, like Lizzie came from there, but she she could be here. Like she could live here and she could make a life here. I totally agree. And sterile is the perfect word to describe Mr. Bingley's estate. And I think the difference is in Mr. Darcy's home, they have so much natural light and there's so much art and it makes it feel more colorful and vibrant in a different way than the Bennett's home is, but still vibrant and inviting rather than austere, like you said. Also, for my entire life, since I, you know, read and watched this story, I've been absolutely obsessed with the idea of Darcy's estate. Like, imagine just being able to be like, I'm going down to the river, which I own, or I'm going to go on a ride through the forest, which I also own. Like, that's insane to me. It sounds amazing. Yeah, I think I would be a little freaked out to live in such a big place in the middle of nowhere. But other than that, seems amazing. The next thing I wanted to talk about was music. And I really love that same tune that gets played throughout the movie, but at different tempos, at different pitches. And you hear Georgiana playing that song when Elizabeth is in Mr. Darcy's house. And you hear it in all these other places too, where you hear it in her own home, because that's the song the servant is always humming. And that's the song that Elizabeth chooses to play for Lady Catherine, but you don't hear it when you go to Bingley's house. Because like you said, that's an austere environment. That's a sterile environment. It's not homey. It's not familiar. It's not somewhere Lizzie can see herself. It's not somewhere she sees her family or the energy that she gets from her family. Obviously, different types of soundtracks work differently with different types of movies, but I thought because this movie focuses so much on the subtlety and nuance of the small moments, I really love that they chose the simplicity of one main tune, but just changed it depending on the scene and the energy and the mood. I thought that was an amazing artistic choice. I love that you noticed that because I actually hadn't realized that that's the same tune that Georgiana plays or that Elizabeth plays. Um, you know, I was too focused on whatever plot things were happening. But I'm definitely going to pay more attention to that on my inevitable rewatch, which will be happening soon, I'm sure. But one more thing that we wanted to talk about is, you know, what? who would you cast if you were making this movie today? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think Lana Condor 
the person who plays Lara Jean and To All the Boys I Loved Before as Jane. Even though, even though Lara Jean is another bold, romantic feminist in her own way, which is so beautiful, and maybe we can dedicate a whole episode to that series because I love it so much. But I think because Lizzie's character requires a bit more of being outspoken, I haven't seen Lana Condor in a ton of stuff, and I'm definitely projecting her character from To All the Boys I Loved Before onto her. But I think that could be nice, too, for today's version of it, where she does have a bit more agency and she is a bit bolder and she takes more initiative with Mr. Bingley, but still has that softer side and isn't always loud about whatever she... I think that's a really amazing casting choice. I think that would be perfect. Um, Also, side note, I love that Lara Jean is someone who is deeply anxious, but also is still bold and knows what she wants. We should definitely do an episode on that series. But yeah, I think I think Lana Condra would be fantastic as Jane. I feel like it would be really fun to see Timothy Chalamet as Wickham, just to be kind of lounging in the background, being nefarious, maybe with some really greasy hair or something. Like, I can just really see him in that part. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I love that. I think that's perfect. And he has that mysterious look, and I think he could play a slime bag very well, so... Excellent choice on your part as well. Timothy and Lana, if you're listening, let us know. I think the goal of this podcast should be to get one celebrity to talk to us. (laughs) I feel like it's really difficult to try and cast the Darcy or the Elizabeth. I don't know. Like a really obvious choice for Elizabeth might be Florence Pugh, but I feel like that's almost too on the nose. Like I really love Florence Pugh, but I feel like I'd like to see someone else in the role of Elizabeth. Um, We were saying a while back, uh, maybe it was you or maybe it was someone else, I don't remember, Um, but maybe Dave Patel as Darcy. That sounds like something I would say, but as you know, (laughs) I have a terrible memory. He would be a good Darcy. He can be such a pup, but in Lion, he was so moody and dramatic, so I could totally see him being a beautiful Darcy. Amazing. Anything else you wanted to cover? Maybe a Matthew McFadden, Mr. Bennett. Oh my god. I guess he is. He's like, I just look too sad, you know? That's true. You would need to do something about his sad eyes. I mean, that would definitely be an obstacle. Um, but, you know, in, in My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which, like I said, is one of the absolute best movies ever, one and two are both excellent. And, you know, the second one is really good for oldest daughters. Like, it's like a preview of our future as, like, adult oldest daughters, like real adults. Um, but the, the love interest in My Big Fat Greek Wedding is played by John Corbett, and he was really great in the role. And then now John Corbett plays the dad in To All the Boys I Loved Before. So I love when, like, you know, actors who were, like, previously in rom-coms, like, come back, and I love that he was so willing to, like, come back and be part of, like, this whole new series of rom-coms that are also really excellent. Yeah, I don't think he's old enough yet to play Mr. Bennett. I actually think that the actor in 2005, Pride and Prejudice, was too old to play Mr. Bennett in this. Like, canonically, Mr. Bennett is not that old. Like, he's older, but he's not, like, white hair and hobbling around the house. That's true. That's fair. His daughters are in their early 20s, so he's probably mid-40s, which makes sense. So, you're right. Look. Yeah, in the book, Mr. Bennett married relatively late, so maybe he's in his early 50s or something, and he's, you know... 
he's not really like white haired and as old as Donald Sutherland in the movie. Yeah. I guess it's also confusing because the people they cast to play the daughters are older than they should have been. So I think in our casting decisions, we'll be more true to age. And so that way we can have Matthew McFadden as our as our Mr. Ben. Well, relatedly, I'm really looking forward to um, Matthew's co-star, Sarah Snook, playing the lead in Persuasion, which I think will be a really excellent role. It feels like a really good fit for her. Yeah, I'm really excited for that, too. I haven't read Persuasion, but I, know. I read the movie about this. <laughs> the main character in Persuasion is kind of essentially Charlotte, um, but she gets to be happy and be like wildly, happily in love with this guy, Captain Wentworth. So, you know, is it wish fulfillment for me personally? Yeah, maybe. Um, but so you haven't watched Shadow and Bone, right? Um, there is an actress in Shadow and Bone, Amita Suman, who plays one of the lead roles. And I think she would be really great for the role of Lizzie because she has a lot of that kind of grit and outspokenness, but she's also really good at those kind of subtle, soft moments. I think she would be really good in that role. I mean, I definitely think Hollywood should definitely reach out to us and hear what we have to say. Yes, I will be expecting Hollywood's call any minute now. All right, any parting words? Any last words about Pride and Prejudice to sum up your feelings about this beautiful story? No, it's just, it's really, really good. And I love it. That's all I've got. Me too. It's probably one of my favorite movies. Like, definitely top three. Thanks for listening to us express our never-ending devotion and love for this movie. We have truly enjoyed gushing over Matthew McFadden. We really hope we're saying his name correctly right now. Please call us, Matthew. We would love to talk to you. We will learn how to pronounce your name appropriately. Um, We love you, and we love everyone who made this movie. Shout out to Jane Austen, clearly. But thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion. We'll hopefully be setting up some forums for our listeners to share their thoughts. Um, And we would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.